So the Bible reading is Mark 5, 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man who had been, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Thank you, Emily. Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to church tonight. We are, as Drew said, continuing to have a look at uh, kind of the, the key themes of Jesus' identity and mission and call as they're recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and that's uh, quite a story, isn't it? Or not, and this happens to you every day, like this sort of thing. Right? It's, it's quite a story. It's actually the longest narrative in Mark's gospel. Uh, so it's the longest single story, 330 words in the Greek, if you were interested. Uh, it's uh, a lengthy story, and so you need to pay attention to it. We'll have a good look at it in a moment. Uh, however, if you've been following the news, uh, then you know that over the last week there's been a couple of kind of key things happening. You've got the Chinese economy, kind of, you know, the, there's a Chinese bubble apparently that's matching or eclipsing our bubble, and if it bursts, ours will or something. I don't know, I can't quite follow it all, but that's in the news. Ashley Madison, uh, the wonderful, wonderful website that's been hacked. And we're not sure how we feel about that because that's illegal as well. But, uh, you know, the whole uh, Ashley Madison saga about, you know, who's cheating on who and is anyone cheating on anyone and are there any women on this site and all those sorts of questions that have leaked out. Have you been following any of this? No? You're all looking like you've never read a newspaper before. 
Uh, and, but of course, that, that all kind of pales into significance with the biggest question in the news, which is, have you joined the Hain plane? All right, you, you, you've heard this story, surely. It's in the news every day. It's City Morning website. City Morning Herald website has a story on Jared Hain every single day, usually kind of on the headline section. Jared Hain, the 27-year-old NRL uh, superstar who's decided to have a crack at uh, American Gridiron. Uh, went overseas, got himself a rookie contract with the San Francisco 49ers and has set the gridiron world abuzz with his talent. The wonder from down under uh, is uh, the nickname that he's been receiving. Uh, it's all happening for Jared Handy. He played his third exhibition game today. Chances are he's going to make the squad. Uh, and uh, on the City Morning Herald website, if you read one of those articles, there's actually a quiz you can take to see how well you know Jared Hayne. Uh, are you a true fan or have you just jumped on the bandwagon? So I took the quiz. There are seven questions. I got three of them right, which I thought was good because I guessed on most of them. So to even get three of them right was pretty good. But I am nonetheless a Jared Hain novice. Uh, apparently, I don't know Jared Hain very well at all. I've just jumped on the bandwagon and I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, you're all familiar, though, with this idea of bandwagon jumping. We've all jumped on a bandwagon at some point in time. I'm also a fair weather Sydney Swan supporter, so if the Swannies are going great, I am so there. Uh, and if not, oh well. Uh, that's kind of the way it goes. We, we're all familiar with this, aren't we? One of the themes that kind of weaves its way through the Gospel of Mark, of course, is who's jumping on the Jesus bandwagon. Uh, because Jesus has kind of rolled into town and he's doing all sorts of pretty extraordinary things, a lot more extraordinary than Mr. Hain, uh, and, uh, and he's gotten all sorts of people who are jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, scholars, when they talk about the Gospel of Mark, tend not to use the language of uh, bandwagon, but they do talk about insiders and outsiders. So the response to Jesus is a remarkable one. All the way through the Gospel, various people respond in various sorts of ways. Uh, and you can actually kind of talk about it in, in kind of this continuum of insiders and outsiders. Mark doesn't talk about people who kind of jump on the bandwagon as people kind of in one box and then another box of people who don't. The people kind of move back and forth on this kind of continuum. So for instance, think about the religious leaders. The religious leaders were those who were perfectly suited and perfectly placed to actually pick who Jesus was and what he was on about. I mean, these are the ones who had studied the scriptures. They knew the signs of the coming kingdom. They knew the prophecies. They were aware of what was taking place. They were the ones who were certainly in, in, in the best position to figure out who Jesus was. And yet, by the end of chapter 3, I think it is, they're already trying to plot his death. Uh, a little bit later on in chapter 3, they're saying to themselves, the only reason he can cast out demons is because he himself is demon-possessed. Uh, so they should have been insiders, but actually end up being outsiders. Then you've got the tax collectors. We looked at them a few weeks ago, kind of their own special category of sinner, if you might recall. There were sinners, and then there were tax collectors, kind of one step further on the spectrum. They should have been outsiders. They were excluded from a lot of normal Jewish society, and yet Jesus invites a tax collector to follow him by the name of Levi. He has dinner with them. And while we don't really know whether they're repenting and following after him, there's something quite remarkable about the fact that these outsiders kind of function as insiders. Then you've got the disciples. The disciples are an odd lot, aren't they? Because positionally, geographically, shall we say, they are insiders, right? There's Jesus, and then there's the 12 men that he said, you should be with me all the time. They are as close to an insider as you can get. And yet, 
all the way through the book, they prove themselves probably to be more on the outsider category. They don't understand anything Jesus does. You know, he calms the storm, he kind of gets up and says, shut up, and it does. And they sit there and go, who is this? I don't know, uh, who do you think he might be, right? Who do you know who controls the wind and the waves? Anyone? Anyone? No, nobody gets it in the boat. The disciples have very, very little faith. Jesus eventually in the book actually begins to ask them, do you still have no faith? Like Jesus begins to kind of wonder if anything's going on. Do, Do you still not understand what's taking place? And so you have this kind of strange continuum. And the continuum or the question about how they relate to Jesus is actually all the more important given Jesus' identity. Last night when I did the Do You Know Jared Hain quiz and found out that I am a Jared Hain novice, I did not spend the next half an hour crying uh, or repenting of my horrible sin and spend a whole bunch of time on Wikipedia finding out about Jared Hain and how many Daily M uh, medals he actually had won and who had given him the first uh, kind of his first gig as a coach and all of those sorts of things. I wasn't actually all that fussed by the fact that apparently I don't know Jared Hain. Because while he's a freakish athlete, he's a freakish athlete in San Francisco. Uh, There's very little relationship between he and I. It doesn't really matter. You with me? Jesus is a little bit different though. Because as Mark has been trying to show us in his gospel, Jesus is not just some freakish teacher who happens to be able to teach scripture more clearly and with more authority than anyone else. Jesus is the one who in his death is actually going to heal people and save people from the effect of their sinfulness. He is going to create a new way for people to relate to God, getting rid of the temple and replacing it with himself. In his resurrection, he has been given all authority, all power, all dominion, and and a kingdom that will be unending. It becomes a little bit more important about whether you're an insider in relationship to Jesus. You might be like me, you're not too fussed whether or not you know Jared Hain particularly well, but we all know that there are certain places where it pays to be on the inside, doesn't it? You know, for those of you still in school or at uni, there's a group of people that it's good to be on the inside of. If you're on the outside of that group, hmm, things are a little bit dicey. For those of you who work, often if you are on the inside with your boss, that's good for promotion and advancement and all of those sorts of things. To be outside, less good. The positions of authority and power and influence, we want to be on the inside. Jesus is the most influential, the most powerful, the most important figure. Are we insiders or are we outsiders? And this is a fairly significant question that Mark's text begs of us. Do we find ourselves as insiders or outsiders? And can I just say, I think it's awfully easy to place ourselves in the outsider category, isn't it? It's very easy when we think of the spectrum, right? You think about God in the very center of everything. And you think of yourself. Do you place yourself right at the center of everything? If you are, you're probably a narcissist, so stop it. But, you know, like, do you kind of sit yourself there and say, yes, I am right there. I am right next to God himself. It's often a lot easier to distance ourselves from that, isn't it? We think to ourselves, ah, I'm not nearly good enough. I'm not holy enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't, uh, whatever it might be. We might look at our lives and we just see all of our character flaws and our personality failures and the things that we've done that have been stupid and whatever it might be, and we think, ah, nah, 
I'd like to be a little bit more inside than I am, but boy, it's easy to see ourselves as outside. And so the story that we're looking at this evening, this passage in Mark chapter 5, is essentially a story of an outsider who's invited to come on the inside. So if you have your Bibles with you, have a bit of a look at this story, because this individual who Jesus encounters in the region of the Gerasenes, this demoniac, is an outsider of the first degree. If you're talking about those who are outsiders in the, in the story of Mark's gospel, this fellow is as outside as anyone that we've encountered. Uh, primarily because he is what is called in, 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 in uh, the Old Testament, he is unclean. Now, have you heard the term unclean before? It's not when your parents say you need to have a bath or that sort of things. That's when you're dirty. This is unclean. This is about ritual purity. In the Old Testament, you can read about the purity laws. Now, it's important to realize something about being clean or unclean ritually, and that is that it's not a moral category. So let me give you an example. Say you're down at the beach, uh, and uh, you've got no shoes on, and uh, you're a guy, so you don't have your shirt on, right? right? So you kind of go across to get some food, and in the shop it says, no shirt, no shoes, no service. There you are standing on the sidewalk, you don't have a shirt on, you don't have any shoes on. You're not doing anything illegal, are you? No policeman's going to come over and give you a fine and say, what do you think you're doing, standing around barefoot without a shirt on? Uh, You're also not doing anything immoral. People aren't going to walk past and take their small children to the other side of the road and look at you like, I can't believe you've done that. That's not going to happen either. But you are also restricted from entering that shop because you don't have the proper footwear or covering, right? Uh, I go to the uh, cricket uh, at the, in January, and that Clark takes me. We sit up in the member stand. It's very posh and kind of away from all the peasantry and whatnot. Uh, and uh, there are certain uh, kind of standards of dress there as well. You have to have covered shoes. If you're in the member stand, you have to wear long pants. And once again, if I showed up with really nice shorts and sandals, I'm not doing anything illegal or anything that is wrong or immoral, but I'm still restricted from access to certain sections of the SCG. You follow me on this? Uncleanliness in the Old Testament was essentially along those lines. It was possible to be unclean without having committed a sin. So some of the ways that you could become unclean was by eating food that was deemed unclean. Uh, So for Orthodox Jews, even to this day, they don't eat pork. That's an unclean animal. Uh, But one of the ways, one of the most significant ways that you could become unclean is if you came into contact with a dead body. If you came into contact with a dead body, um, the uh, ritual for restoring your cleanliness was actually fairly lengthy. Not only did you have to bathe and wash your clothes, you had to wait a period of, I think, seven days, and then you actually had to make sure that you washed using these ashes that were specially prepared by the high priest. So to be someone who was unclean because you had touched a dead body was to be significantly unclean. Did you notice where this man lives? Three times Jesus, uh, sorry, Mark tells us. He lives in the tombs. He lives in a cemetery. He lives in a graveyard filled with dead bodies. Now that's a really depressing place to live, wouldn't you say? But it means that this man is not only, shall we say, uh, literally cut off from people, but he's living in this really symbolic place. He is unclean. 
Now, on top of that, the the presenting problem, of course, for him is that he is filled with impure or unclean spirits. In fact, he is possessed by an absolute army of them. When Jesus asks him his name, he says, Legion, for we are many. Uh, When the demons leave him, they go into a group of pigs, 2,000 of them, which suggests that there was at least a one-to-one ratio between the number of demons in him and those in the pigs. A Roman legion was actually 6,000 soldiers. Now, that's a lot of demons. Now, again, think about entering into the presence of God. For those who cannot come into the presence of God because they had touched a dead body, because God is the source of life and I have now touched that which is dead, I am ritually unclean, it's not appropriate to take the scent and the stench of death into the presence of God himself, in that sense. And then on top of that, someone is filled with an, like an occupying army of demons. Do you see why this man is so far outside? But he's also a Gentile. Now, if that term doesn't make any sense for you, essentially for Jews, there were two people in the world, two types of people, Jews and everybody else. And if you were everybody else, you were a Gentile. This is the first Gentile that Jesus has had any interaction with in, in Mark's gospel. Now, Gentiles were not uh, necessarily evil or immoral or even necessarily unclean. But because Gentiles, not Jews, didn't actually follow the same laws uh, that the Jews did, they would often end up becoming unclean. Right, so, so Gentiles didn't have any problem eating pork products. So they'd have bacon uh, in the morning and they might have a pulled pork sandwich at, uh, at afternoon tea or whatever it might be. That made them unclean. Now, there were certain types of uncleanliness that if you were unclean and I touched you, I'd also become unclean. So for pious, upright Jews, they tried to limit the amount of interaction they had with Gentiles. You follow me? Jesus, a good, upright Jew, has now come into Gentile territory for the very first time. And this is the man who comes to meet him. But apart from all of that, Wouldn't you say that this man's lot in life is utterly pathetic? I mean, he is utterly powerless. He is is homeless in the deepest and most profound sense of the word. And there is a recklessness about his life. Day and night, he's yelling in the tombs and in, in, in the cemetery, cutting himself with stones. This is a desperate individual. In in an awful state and utterly powerless to be able to change his future or his destiny. Now to understand what Jesus is doing here, we actually have to go back to chapter 3. We kind of get caught up in the whole demon thing. We kind of think to ourselves, are, are there really demons and can you really have an army of them in you? And how does that happen? And all of those sorts of questions. For Mark's audience, the reality of the supernatural and the possibility of demon possession were taken for granted. So let's just kind of, shall we say, take this at face value as we read this through. But if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 3, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. It's where the religious leaders say that Jesus can cast out demons because he himself is demon-possessed. And Jesus decides to take that opportunity to teach on this issue. Here's what he has to say. How can Satan... Drive out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, 
don't be so ridiculous. If I, was in, if I were actually uh, possessed by demons, I wouldn't be casting them out. That's ludicrous. And then he says this in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus here is describing his ministry. Isn't it an interesting description? Uh, how can I describe my ministry? Ah, I know. It's like breaking into someone's house, tying them up, and taking all the good stuff. That's an interesting way for Jesus to describe his ministry, wouldn't you say? Now, the context is that he is binding the strong man. In that context, it's all about Satan. Well, what's happening here is, of course, Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom, Satan's house at this point in time. Did you notice how Mark describes this man who is possessed by an army of demons? He describes him as living in the tombs. He describes him as quite pitiful. But he also makes a great deal out of the fact that no one, no one could bind him anymore. Many had tried. They'd bind him with chains and he would just snap them. He would tear the fetters off of his legs. No one could subdue him until Jesus comes. I don't know about you, but this is a very, shall we say, offensive Jesus. A Jesus on the offensive, shall we say. Sometimes Jesus strikes me as a bit of a hippie. He just, you know, here he is with the most important task in the world, right? To save the world from sin. And yet he doesn't appear particularly driven, right? It just, you read the gospel and it sounds like he's, you know, hey, we're on this side of the lake. Let's go to the other side of the lake. And they go to the other side of the lake and they hang around for a while and he says, let's go to the other side. And he gets off and someone says, hey, can you come heal my daughter? Yeah. And off he goes. Can you do this? Sure. And off he goes. He just seems to kind of drift. And as people ask him, they come to him and say, can you help me? He goes, yes. This is the the first time we see Jesus going on the offensive. He enters into this territory and this man... This man has not asked for help. He hasn't come and said, oh, Jesus, will you save me? I'm possessed by an army of demons. I I don't know how it happened. I don't know what to do about it. The confrontation is, in terms of its order, is that this man has run towards Jesus, and Jesus has said, come out of him. And at that point, the Spirit has responded at the top of his voice, what do you want with us? Jesus, son of the most high God, swear to God you won't torture us. Some scholars think this is an attempt by the demons to perform some ancient elementary magic. That if you actually knew the true name of an individual or the true name of a God, that you could then control them. And perhaps to try to bind him in some sort of oath, some sort of promise that he wouldn't torture them. But notice the power and authority of Jesus to bind even an army of demons. I mean, they beg him, don't torture us. They beg him, don't send us out of the area. We don't know why. Apparently, they really like the location or something. I don't know. Uh, Don't send us out of the area. And in the end, they say, send us into the pigs. And it's only when Jesus says, you may go, that they can go. I mean, this is Ghostbusters material at the very end when the whole thing falls apart and they all going to go out again. But there's no, it's not that the containment unit has failed. Jesus has said, yes, you may. This is overwhelming power, overwhelming authority. And I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus also basically destroys the local economy. 
Did you notice that? I'm not a pig farmer, but 2,000 pigs sounds like a lot of pigs. Uh, and uh, they just kind of up and drown themselves in the water. Okay. You can see why the people said, Jesus, would you mind, I don't know, leaving? You're really bad for business. <laughs> I know, what's going on with that? Why would Jesus allow the entire local economy to be drowned? I think there's probably some points for reflection for us living in a consumerist and capitalist society. But it seems to me that one of the things that's taking place here is that the value Jesus has placed on this one man's life is greater than that of the local economy. To save one man is worth the the cost-benefit analysis that takes place. One man, an entire economy, one man wins. Jesus has placed that much emphasis on restoring and saving this man. It's such a a remarkable story. And it is an example, of course, of the grace that Jesus offers. To say to this man who is incapable of asking for help and saying, you are invited in. To the ultimate outsider, you are are invited in. Now, how the man responds is fairly important. We'll talk a little bit more about the response required of that invitation next week. But let me just point out something very important about the invitation itself. Don't know if you've seen uh, Charlie, uh, sorry, Charlie and the Chalka Factory. Uh, This is uh, an image from the most recent version with Johnny Depp, perfectly cast for Willy Wonka. Uh, The story goes like this. Willy Wonka's marvelous chocolate factory has been closed for many, many years because his competitors kept nicking all of his best products. And finally, the smokestacks have started up again. But there's a mystery revolving around Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And so he releases an edict to the world that there will be five golden tickets sent across the world. And the five children who get those golden tickets along with their parent, parent or guardian are able to come in and have a tour of Willy Wonka's marvelous chocolate factory. You know the story. One young girl gets her father, who's very, very wealthy, to just buy up thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of boxes until they find a golden ticket. One child is so greedy and eats so many chocolate bars that he eventually finds one by accident. One kid works the system and only buys one chocolate bar because he knows exactly the one that it's supposed to be. And Charlie Bucket, the poor Charlie Bucket, stumbles upon it almost out of sheer luck. Now, as I said earlier, uh, Jared Hayne, apparently I'm only a bandwagon jumper. But... If there were five golden tickets to go meet Jared Hayne and go to a San Francisco 49ers game and get a Hayne playing shirt, I'd go if I got one. Wouldn't you? Only five in the world. Five tickets, that's all. Only five people get to do this, and I got one. I'd go. I'd go to just about anything if I were only one of five people who got to do it, right? Some high-level mathematics thing, absolutely, I'm in, right? What do I know about mathematics? Nothing, but look, I got a golden ticket. I'm going because it's special, it's unique, it's, 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 it's oh, well, a one in a million. How cool is that? And the significance of the invitation, of course, determines our response, Right? 
And Jesus has essentially presented this man and, and presents us with a golden ticket. Here is your golden ticket. This is, this is a unique, life-changing invitation. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Because Jesus invites all of us to become insiders of the first degree. To no longer be outsiders or to be on the continuum somewhere where we think to ourselves, well, I'm mostly outside but kind of inside, but I, I can't get too close. Jesus says, no, 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 come all the way in. Here is your backstage pass, the backstage pass into the heavenly courts. Come in behind everything else, and I'll, I'll introduce you to my dad. You'll like that. Here is the invitation that he gives to us, and it's what theologians and scholars call grace. You may have noticed that the term grace wasn't actually found in that passage, but it's a story all about grace. Someone completely on the outside, completely and utterly powerless to change their situation, held captive to their past in a pathetic, pitiful, dead end of a life. And Jesus steps off the boat and offers him an invitation to be an insider of the first degree. That is grace. But the illustration of a golden ticket is actually a little bit misleading because it suggests, very subtly, of course, that if you are rich enough, smart enough, greedy enough, or just lucky enough, you too might get one. That if you kind of work hard at it, if you kind of do the right things, if you're in the right place at the right time, then the invitation extends to you. But that's not actually the best best picture of grace. Because while Jesus offers us something extraordinary, it's not actually a golden ticket. It's actually more like this image. Don't know if you've ever been to a symphony in the domain or opera in the domain or something in the domain. You ever been there? Free festival. There is a symphony orchestra, professional musicians playing some extraordinary piece of classical music, and it is absolutely, utterly free for 100,000 people. Just show up. And you, with no ticket, no cost at all, no expectations apart from your kind of bring your own party blanket, come on in and enjoy the show. This is much closer to the idea of what Jesus invites us into. A a festival, a a feast itself, something that is big and broad and and enormous and, and for everyone. It's not just for the five lucky people who kind of grab onto that magic ticket. It's for anyone who wants to come along. Bring your friends. Come early. Set up a blanket. Bring some chairs. Have a book. Spend the day and then enjoy what has been put on for you. And and this image, I think, would would fit very nicely in a couple places in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter uh, 7, sorry, 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. We've already touched on that story a couple times, haven't we? And he gets the crowd to sit on the green grass in groups of 50s and 100s, and he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, gives it to his disciples, and they give it to the crowds and all eat and are satisfied, and there's leftovers. But there's a second feeding story that we tend not to pay as much attention to. It's in chapter 8 of Mark. 
where 4,000 people gather. And they were with him for so long that he decides that he has to feed them as well. The fascinating thing about that second group is that they are in the region of the Decapolis, the same region Jesus is in in chapter 5. Some scholars wonder if the 4,000 people who came were actually there because of the successful ministry of the man who had been formerly possessed by an army of demons. Did you notice what happens? The people say, you've destroyed the economy, can you please leave? You're freaking us out with your power and authority. Jesus gets into the boat and the man says, can I come with you? Can I please, 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 please come with you? I want to come with you. I want to get in the boat with you. I know your disciples have just had a really rough kind of rowing across the thing. I'll help. I I want to be with you. And Jesus says, no. He says, but go, tell your family, tell your friends, tell your people all that the Lord has done for you and how he's shown mercy on you. And did, did you hear what it says then? Jesus says, go tell what the Lord has done. The man went into the region of the Decapolis and told what Jesus had done for him. And the next time Jesus comes back to the region of the Decapolis, he isn't met by one raving lunatic coming from the tombs. He's met by a crowd of 4,000 people who stay with Jesus for three days. And after having heard his teaching for three days, he provides them with bread. And once again, there is more than enough for everyone. This is the image of the invitation that Jesus extends to us. It's not just to go from being an outsider to being some sort of specialist on the inside. It's from being an outsider to join the festival of the kingdom of God. To have access to the full provision of all that God has provided for us in Christ. To be insiders of the first degree. And how we respond to that is actually pretty important. As I said, next week we'll have a a close look at our response, the sorts of things that Mark suggests we need to be looking for in our response to Jesus. But tonight, we want to take an opportunity to celebrate communion together. To take the same elements that Jesus took, gave thanks, broke, gave to his disciples. The same elements that were given to crowds of 5,000 and crowds of 4,000. The same things that were infused with meaning of Jesus' own death in the Passover that he celebrated with his disciples are now here for us. And if you feel a bit like an outsider, think to yourself, I don't really understand this whole thing. I don't quite get the faith stuff. I don't seem to respond the way that other people respond. I'm not the right sort of person. Whatever it is. If you find yourself on the outside, but you want to accept in even a small way Jesus' invitation to come in, well, then I would invite you to participate with us. If you're a visitor here and you find yourself on the outside, perhaps not only of our community, but outside faith, and you want to take a step towards accepting what Jesus has done, then we invite you to participate too. Here's how it works. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then you'll see that there's two tables on either side of the auditorium. There's a couple of loaves of bread and little cups of juice. And when you are ready, if you want to make your way to one of those two tables, tear off a little piece of bread and take a little cup of juice and return to your seat. 
These simple elements remind us, of course, of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us. To bring about the claims that he has given that we are forgiven and restored and brought into relationship with God himself. So when you're ready, and you might need to take a moment to pray yourself, talk to God about how you're feeling about being on the inside and wanting to be on the, sorry, be on the outside and wanting to be on the inside, recognizing the ways you failed and how you want to make that right and live more like an insider. Well, then when you've done that, take and eat that piece of bread and drink the cup of juice. And then after a little bit of time, the team will come back up and they'll lead us in worship to conclude our service. Does that make some sense? For those of you who've been around, you know the routine. If you're visiting with us or this is the first time you've done this with us, that's how it works. Follow everyone else's lead and we'll work it out from there. So let me take a moment to lead us in prayer, as Drew did a little bit earlier, to give us uh, some words to think about. And then uh, we'll just have some music playing uh, quietly in the background and you can take some time to pray and think. And then if you want to, please participate with us as we take these elements and symbols, a reminder of the invitation that Jesus has given to us. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your invitation is extended even to us. There is nothing that we have done, nothing in our background, nothing in who we are, nothing in how we respond to you, nothing in, in, in our, uh, our character or personality that places us so far outside that we are not open to the invitation of your grace. Thank you for that wonderful privilege. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your death and resurrection, you have not only taken care of all that separates us from God, but that you have also opened a new relationship with him, that we can enter into the very provision of God, know your blessing and your care in a very real and deep way. I ask, Holy Spirit, that as we gather here tonight, as we consider where we are on that spectrum, whether we are outsiders or whether we count ourselves as insiders, that these little symbols, a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice, would be more than they are. That you would bless them and that they would speak to us not only of your love for us, but of your grace. And that each one of us would recognize our powerlessness, that we would realize your power and authority to set us free from anything that's held us captive. And that we might more and more be, begin to live out what it means to be people who are insiders, part of the festival of the kingdom of God. And so we pray that in this next little time, it would be set apart, uh, that you would do your work in our lives, and that we would begin to respond appropriately. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.